Hello again, and welcome to the Messages podcast of Newbury Park First Christian Church. We're glad you're listening because we believe that constant contact with the Word of God, obviously handled with the right heart, can really change your life and can help you adopt the kingdom of God into every part of your daily rhythm. Today's podcast is from a series called Resolve, based on the book of Daniel. Just as Daniel found himself in the middle of a culture that was quickly flowing away from God's design, we can learn from his example how to resolve to follow the Lord no matter what and thrive as a result. So be blessed today as you receive this word. So I don't know if, if any of you have ever seen um, these crazy things. I think that they call them um, the magic eye. There's a, um, a picture that looks something like this, right? A- anybody ever seen these things? And, um, and th- they, if you look at it a certain way, you see the picture inside the picture, I mean, yeah, I hate these things. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know. Has it, can anyone see it yet? We'll just leave it up for the minute. Yeah, see if you can, if you can take a look. I, I, I checked it out a couple times just to make sure that we could see it like on the screen because I have a printed copy of this thing. Years ago, someone gave me this one in particular, and for about a year, I could not see the image that's inside of that thing. Um, and there's a cool little test thing for those of you who think you see it, <laughs> because uh, I'll just tell you, right in the middle, there's um, Jesus is on the cross, and then there's uh, a picture of the um, nativity on the bottom on one side and a picture of the empty tomb on the other side, right? The bookends of Jesus' life. And, um, and some of you are looking at that going, yeah, right, <laughs> you know? Um, it took me forever to try to, to, to be able to see that thing. And now that I can see it, I can see it right? But everyone had, they gave me this picture and I hung it in the office and everyone tried to give me advice about how you could see it, right? Some people said, oh, you got to cross your eyes, but not too far. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't know. Um, some said that you have to like get right up next to it and then, um, and then back away really fast. Some people said you had to just stare at it and then turn around really fast and then look at it again. I'm pretty sure those are the people that put like a little camera in my office uh, to see if I would do that. Um, Some people said, some people said that, um, and then finally somebody told me, they said, okay, so the way that you do it is that you have to look past it. You have to look further than just the picture. In other words, if you look and you try to see the wall behind the screen, the wall behind the picture, anybody pick it up yet? Anybody see it? Nobody? Okay, I'm going to have to make copies and give it to everybody because I can see it. So, but, I, but I practiced, right? Um, and, and so here's the thing is you had to look past it. And so as I, as I went in there and I looked at the office and I tried to look just past it, just towards the wall behind it, like staring into the wall behind it, pop, it just came alive. And um, I really believe that Daniel chapter 7 and the rest of the book of Daniel are a lot like these magic eye kind of pictures, right? Um, There's something definitely there, but um, you have to look at it a certain way and you have to look beyond what's just right there in front of your face. And, And there are things There are historical things, there are spiritual truths embedded in the pages of Daniel 7 through 12 that we're going to try to unpack over the next few weeks. Um, Be patient, Um, you know, there are going to be Sundays where you go, I just don't see it, I'm not sure I kind of get it, but it's there. Um, And I will tell you this, I've been studying this for years and years and years and years, and I still look at it. And I got to tell you, even when I see some of it, even when I get a glimpse of it, sometimes if I just pull my head away for just a minute or I, or I just kind of look to the side, all of a sudden I can't see it anymore. And, and I'm telling you that there are things embedded in the truth of God's word that I think God put there for us. And there's sometimes we really see it and sometimes we just look away for a moment, we take a glance away and then we don't see it anymore. And there's some things that I honestly believe that you and I aren't meant, we, we can see it, we know God's at work, but we're not meant to fully get all of the detail, right? Because that is what eternity is all for. 
And so um, don't get confused. Don't give up hope. In fact, what we're going to read this morning was written precisely to bring hope, to bring hope to people and to bring hope to our friend Daniel um, that we've been studying from. And so Daniel chapters one through six are um, historical narrative. It just, it tells a story, right? It tells an amazing story of God's interaction with his people. It tells about how the nation of Israel, you know, the people that came out of slavery out of Egypt and went to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, worked through the desert, took the promise, all these things. But it's a story about how God forever kept reminding them, don't go worship other gods, don't fall away, stay faithful to him. But it's a story about how they messed up, how their kingdom was divided and how they, they couldn't get it right and they started worshiping foreign gods and the gods of their culture and the cultures around them, which is so pertinent for us today because our culture screams, come and worship me. Our culture is constantly saying, hey, come worship the gods of, of wealth and power. Come worship the gods of, of style and culture and all these things. And we get drawn in so many times to that. And, and, and what Daniel is trying to remind us of is that we need to be people who stay faithful in the midst of living in a culture that is not our home. It's a story in Daniel chapters 1 through 6 um, of uh, the children of Israel who, after hundreds of years of following other gods, God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to destroy Jerusalem and take Daniel and about 10,000 other people captive back to Babylon. And we studied this over the first few weeks. And then we saw how these guys, uh, Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they resolved, and that's why we've called our sermon series Resolve. They resolved not to defile themselves by worshiping other gods or breaking the commands of God, but to stay faithful to the one true God and to worship him only. Even though they were in captivity, they resolved to continue to worship God. And sub subsequently, because of that, when they were told, hey, you have to bow down to these idols, or hey, you can only pray to the king, that these guys suffered the consequences of that. And, and they were, in chapter 3, they were thrown, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into the fiery furnace, right? And we remember their response, even if God doesn't save us, we will not worship you or bow down to your idol. And then in chapter six, we, we studied last week, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den because he won't pray to anyone except the one true God. And what they discovered, and what I hope and pray that we are learning from our study of this amazing book, is that God, almighty God, not human authorities, not earthly powers, not some evolutionary survival of the fittest type of scheme, but God is in control of all things. He, 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 the one true God sits on the throne and he is quite capable of taking care of things. And, and I, I need to say that again. God still sits on the throne and he is quite capable of taking care of everything. And now for you, those of you who watch too much news every day, God is still on the throne. And he is quite capable of handling all the junk that you see happening in our world. In fact, before it happened, he knew it. And to be quite honest, there's a lot of it, like that picture, you don't see what he sees but he is allowing and controlling things so that everything works out in his plan. And so that is the God that we serve. Can you give him an amen this morning? And we want to learn from Daniel and these guys because we want to live with that same kind of resolve. That no matter what the world throws at us, that we are able to worship him and him alone because he is the one true God, and our eternity is in his hands. But as we turn the page now to chapter 7 and beyond in the second half of this book of Daniel, we, we get into a totally different genre of literature, and we're going to dive into that pretty heavily in just a few minutes. Daniel, who has experienced God's deliverance firsthand, getting saved from the lion's den last week in chapter 6, now in chapter 7, Daniel stands terrified. But what could terrify a guy who slept in the lion's den? 
What, what could cause the prisoner of war who rose to second in control of all of the country and all of the kingdom, what could cause him to lose sleep and what could cause him to have a troubled mind? A dream. You know, we've seen several dreams so far, but those dreams were always somebody else's dreams and now Daniel has dreams. Uh, he has a vision that didn't just seem real, it was a vision that Daniel knew eventually someday would become real. And Daniel 7 through 12 is like, uh, it reads like a journal. Um, I, I don't know about you, um, I, I don't dream a lot. Um, I mean, they tell me, I, I've read stuff about dreams and everybody says, oh yeah, you dream, you just don't remember them. And I, I, I have been given this incredible gift by God that um, when my head touches the pillow, I'll see you tomorrow, right? I'm just, I'm done. I'm just like, I'm out. Um, Brenda and I, for years, you know, we would try to pray together before we go to bed at night, you know, like good married couples should do. And uh, we, we tried it. Um, Brenda would pray first and I'd fall asleep while she prayed. And then so she would say, hey, why don't you pray first? Um, and so I would pray, and I would fall asleep in the middle of my prayer. And Brenda would say, did you just fall asleep while you were praying? And I said, there's no better way. So, um, you know, so I just like, it's, it's, it's a gift, I don't, you know. Um, so I thought our kids, I mean, as wonderful as they are, I thought they all slept through the night all the time. Um, you know, I, I, I was not aware. Um, praise, praise the Lord for Brenda. Um, she endured a lot. Um, but the reality is, is that um, this, this, um, they, they tell you, like, if you dream a lot, keep a journal, you know, and write all this stuff down. Um, mine's blank. <laughs> um, uh, but, but this reads like a journal that Daniel would keep where he would have these visions and he have these dreams and he would write these things down, okay? And, um, and what we're going to find is that, in fact, Daniel 7 it takes us back even before Daniel chapter 6 because there's a clean break in the book. Um, Daniel's one, like I said, Daniel, uh, chapters 1 through 6 are all historical narrative. Da uh, chapters 7 through 12 are apocalyptic literature, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But there's a clean break there. And then Daniel, it's like somebody then just found Daniel's prayer journal or dream journal and opened it up and just started reading, Okay. And so we find out that uh, what we're going to read today happened probably a couple years before Daniel chapter 6 and the lion's den. In fact, it tells us right off the bat that it happened during the reign of Belshazzar of Babylon, who's already been overthrown. So that kind of sets the stage. And what we're going to do today, I'm just going to read straight through the chapter. Um, there's a lot of craziness in there, and then we're going to kind of unpack some pieces of that uh, today. So if you have a Bible, um, follow along. Um, uh, and and I, I encourage you, whether it's electronic or whether you have, I mean, I still prefer the, the good old paper kind. Um, just have a Bible with you. Um, you can, if you don't have one, you can read with us on the screen. So um, let's dive in and read, starting in Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and the visions passed through his mind as he was laying on the bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until the wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood up on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast. It looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was the fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all of the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, 
thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair, and the hair of his head was like white wool. The throne was flaming with fire, and the wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. Thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because the boastful words of the horn kept speaking and I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had uh, been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one who was standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. He said, four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and its bronze claws and the beast that had crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before the three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this thorn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten uh, horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. And the saints will be handed over to him for a time and times and half a time. But the courts will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints and the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Yeah, so, okay, what, what are these beasts and all this craziness about, right? Well, Daniel chapter 7 verses, or Daniel chapter 7 through 12, like I said, is written in this style, uh, is very, uh, a popular style in this time called apocalyptic literature. It was typically written by people who were suffering under some form of oppression or persecution and we're looking forward to some type of liberation from their oppressors. It's written, obviously, using a great deal of symbolism to hide the message from the people who it wasn't intended for. In other words, they would write with all these symbols that the people who would be reading this would understand, but it was written in a way that the people who they didn't want it to know, usually their oppressors, couldn't quite understand the full thing. And Apocalyptic literature also shares a lot of prophetic insight into the future. One thing the reader must keep in mind is that it is assumed by the writer of apocalyptic literature that the readers, the recipients of the letter, would understand the symbolism, right? When Daniel was, when this was being written, it was not necessarily assumed, I mean, maybe the, the Holy Spirit knew that we'd all be reading this later, but when it was being written initially, it was understood that the people who first read this would understand the symbolism, 
right? So there's a historical piece of this that, that makes it hard for us to understand, but the people who lived back then, they would have went, oh, yeah, we know who the, this beast is. We know who the bear is. We know who the leopard is. We know all these, you know, they, they could figure that out. Often, when we think of apocalyptic, the word apocalyptic, like when you think apocalyptic, what do you think of? End of the world, right? Like meteors crashing down and the world exploding and all kinds of th- crazy, horrible things happening, right? Well, apocalypse does not mean end of world, right? Uh, that, that's what people in the, our world have taken it to mean. Like, you know, there's going to be an apocalypse and, you know, the zombie apocalypse even, right? There's that whole crazy thing when the zombies will rule the world. Um, but, but the reality is apocalypse does not mean end of world. Apocalypse actually means to uncover or to reveal. Its literal translation means to pull back, right? To pull back, like pull back a curtain and reveal something that's behind it. Kind of like, remember Wizard of Oz, right? So you see behind the curtain. So apocalypse is like that. It's God pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see what is happening from his perspective. And it's not always just about the future things. It's about what is happening right now. Apocalyptic literature often in the Bible is about God giving someone, usually one of his people, a prophet or a leader, um, a heavenly glimpse or a heavenly perspective on an earthly situation. That's what it's usually all about. Now, uh, mixed in there, there are things, and obviously, because this is Scripture, because it's Holy Spirit-inspired, the Holy Spirit interjects things that are not only for that time, but are for us today as well. And, so, and some of that is still future-minded. So I hope I'm not losing you on this. I know there's a lot of you know, literature and historical geek-out stuff, but this is always kind of fun for me. So, um, and so that's what apocalyptic literature is about. So that's what the, the, these next uh, few chapters is all about. It's about having God pull back the curtain so we can look ahead and go, oh, okay, I see what God is up to. And sometimes by looking back to what God was doing, we can see ahead to what God is going to do, right? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So apocalyptic literature is kind of fun to figure out, but don't get caught up. Because just like the picture, there's lots of people who are going to tell you all kinds of ways to look at it. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, this last couple of weeks as I was preparing for this, I've been w- reading all kinds of stuff, and there is some crazy out there. I, I listened to one message by a guy who immediately, as he jumps into who are these four beasts, immediately he just goes like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, this is like the, the, the lion and the eagle, it's the United States and England, and then the bear is Russia, and then there's going to be a war, and then we're all, and then all this stuff is going to happen, and it's going to happen like in the next couple months. I was like, if it brings Jesus back, bring it on. But I was like, man, like, you know, you got to understand too that over the last couple thousand, like this is like 2,500 years old. And for 2,500 years, especially the last 2,000 years, in every generation, there are people who have been thinking, this is going to happen tomorrow, right? So, so if you're the one who's thinking like, oh, Jesus is coming back right now, just know you're in really good company, okay? Because all of God's people through the generations, and I just believe it's this, I believe it's hopeful anticipation on our part. It's like, I mean, who wouldn't want Jesus to just come back tomorrow, right, and take us to heaven? I mean, what, what an amazing thing that would be. And I have to tell you, I, I, I join in that. Ever since I was a little kid, I had this weird thing, um, you know, that I always thought, I'm going to be alive when Jesus returns. Now, I hope that's the case. Do I know for sure? No, because <laughs> no one knows the day, and we'll dive into that later too. So what, what about this crazy nightmare and all these beasts and things like that? So here's the thing. If you remember back in Daniel chapter 2, what's shared in Daniel chapter 7, especially with the beast, is pretty similar. It's almost identical to what we saw in Daniel chapter 2 with the statue. And you've got a little chart if you have the notes. We're going to kind of dive into that and to try to understand first who these four beasts are. In Daniel chapter 2, you might remember there were, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the big statue, had a head of gold, um, a chest of silver, belly of bronze, the legs of, uh, and feet of iron and clay. 
and then the kingdoms that it represented. The head of gold was Babylon, chest of silver was the Medo-Persian Empire, which we were introduced to the last couple weeks. And then the belly of bronze is the Greek um, Empire, um, and then after that is the Roman Empire, okay? God was giving Daniel a, a sneak peek at to what the immediate future was going to be in that area of the world, right? And we know that that all happened. And it, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear. And as far as Daniel chapter 2, I don't know very many Bible scholars that disagree with that, right? Now, when we move to Daniel chapter 7, there's lots of disagreement, mainly because it's apocalyptic literature and everybody wants it to mean something different, but the reality is, is that I believe, this, after studying this for a while, my personal opinion on the matter is that Daniel chapter 7 is very, very close to Daniel chapter 2. There's the lion, right? We start out in the first beast as a lion with eagle's wings. Um, and if, if you see this little statue, this was the symbol of Babylon, right? A lion's body with wings on it, Right? Um, so, and if you go to ancient Babylon, even today, these things are all over the place, right? And so when it says, oh, it was a lion with wings, you know, you're like, okay, yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't hard to figure that one out, okay? Um, this Babylonian empire, um, you know, the symbol was this lion with eagle's wings, symbol of strength and power. But the Babylonian empire only lasted about 100 years, right? The second beast was a bear, that was raised up on one side. And you can go back to the chart, I think. Um, and so just like the silver-chested statue represented the Medo-Persian Empire under King Darius, under King Xerxes, and Cyrus, the fact, um, the fact that the bear is raised up on one side actually kind of lends us even more to believe this because the Medo-Persian Empire was a combined empire, but one of the empires was way stronger. The Persian Empire was, was huge. You know, I mean, w when you think about the Persian Empire, um, they, they had what was considered in the world the first, like, million-man-plus army. You guys remember Xerxes? How many guys, how many of you saw 300, right? Remember that whole thing? So Xerxes, he had the, you know, he had the million-man, actually, some people say it was two-million-man army, um, but it was slow-moving, right? Not like a leopard, not like the lion. Okay, he was slow-moving, but it just ground everything in its way, right? But there were three, it said it had three ribs in its mouth, so there, was, um, there were these uh, three kings that mainly represented that, Darius, Xerxes, and Cyrus. And um, Darius was definitely um, much weaker than the rest of them. And so, like, the whole idea that this bear, like, kind of, like, is stronger on one side, um, it, it really lends us to believe that that's what, what this was. Now, Xerxes had his uh, two-million-man uh, army, and then eventually he marched against Greece. And this slow-moving but devastated force um, that we picture as this bear moving through with the Persian army, it lasted about 250 years until they were defeated by Alexander the Great, okay, in about 330 B.C. Now, which leads us to the third beast, okay? The third beast we find in verse 6 was a leopard with four heads. And, I mean, now you just think about that and you're like, this thing, this is crazy stuff, right? But again, it's, it's all symbolism and it all represents different things. So, and typically in apocalyptic literature, a beast represents a power or a kingdom. Okay, that's, that's pretty normal. Um, the sea usually represents chaos. So remember, where did these beasts come from? Okay, out of, out of the world, out of chaos, okay, and these things, they popped up. So the third beast is this leopard with four heads, and most scholars believe that this is most likely, just like the belly of bronze in chapter 2, it represents the Greek empire. With a leopard-like speed, Alexander the Great, he swept through the known world at that time, just completely taking over the whole world uh, at the time. Within 10 years, he swept through the known world and took control. In fact, Alexander the Great eventually died in a drunken stupor because he was depressed because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. But, kind of interesting, this leper had how many heads? Yeah, when he died, his four generals took over, 
right? And he had four generals, um, and we're not going to go into that because I will go down a rabbit trail, and um, that'll get kind of crazy. But he had these four generals that took over his empire, and each ruled a different part of the empire. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the weeks to come. But verse 6 is really important because it says authority was, uh, it was given authority to rule. A lot of these kingdoms think that they took control, right? And that's what happens in a lot of our world today. Uh, a lot of the kingdoms think they take control. But one of the things we have to realize here is that in verse 6 it says, it was given authority to rule. Who was it given authority by? Yeah, by God. If you remember, these beasts all came out of the sea, but what caused them to come out of the sea? The four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven blew, churned up the water, and then they came out. So heaven is really the one, that, this is all being directed from God's holy throne, right? God is like giving authority to all this to happen. And, and they didn't just take power, they were given power to rule. Why? Why would some of these pagan kings and kingdoms be given power? It's so that God's plan can move forward. In, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it was because God's people were misbehaving. God said, somebody's going to have to discipline them, right? And so he lets Nebuchadnezzar be part of that. And, and then he's, now he's preparing for the coming of Christ, which we'll definitely get into in just a moment. So then the, after, the, after that, there's the terrifying fourth beast. Um, it's got it's like legs like iron, and the kingdom ruled with an iron fist. Rome had been the greatest world power in history, had the broadest kingdom, the longest reign. Most historians believe that the influence of the Roman Empire still exists today, right? In our forms of government today, a lot of those come from um, that whole Roman Empire era. And so then, so we have all these beasts, right? And so th you've got your chart there. It kind of makes sense. And, and, but this terrible beast, it has 10 horns, and then there's this other one that, that we'll kind of talk about briefly. There's these 10 horns that represented 10 kings. Now, there was more than 10 kings or Caesars in, in the Roman Empire, but there were 10 that, um, in history that were pretty prominent. The, then there's this little horn in verse 8 that gives everybody trouble. Because in verse 8, we have this little horn that pops up in, in the midst of all of these things. And many people believe, it, depending on how you view the picture, that that is a picture of the Antichrist, right? And if you take this and you see it outside of the immediate historical context that it's in, and you push this to future tense then definitely you, you could see that as, okay, this is a picture of the Antichrist that's to come right before everything else happens. There's a lot of speculation about who that little horn might be. In fact, that little horn that's only briefly mentioned here, right, gets a lot of attention by a lot of people in different, in different theological circles, okay? Many people believe that that little horn represents a guy in this historical era. His name was um, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was one of the guys, he came, he was a descendant of one of those generals from Alexander the Great. One of the reasons they believe that that horn could have represented him is because if there was ever a boastful king, this guy was it. He actually made people worship him as if he was God. When he, he hated Israel so badly, he came in, he desecrated the temple. At one point, um, he comes in and he's so angry with the Jewish people and all of their laws, he forbade the Jewish people to circumcise their male sons. Um, and so there were two ladies who wanted to um, uh, still keep the Jewish law and have their sons circumcised. Antiochus was such a horrible king, he had the babies killed and made the mothers carry their rotting bodies as a demonstration to all these people, like, don't follow those laws or I'm going to take it out on you. Then he actually, to, to show his disdain for the Jewish nation, he drags a pig into the temple grounds and, and uh, offers a pig on the altar, okay? And if you know much about Jewish history and the whole no pork thing, right? I mean, it's, it's an act of absolute desecration, uh, of the temple grounds. And so there's people that, there's a term you'll hear in apocalyptic readings called the abomination that causes desolation. There's a lot of people that believes this abomination happened with Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtering this pig on the altar. 
Uh, um, there's other people um, who believe that that little horn was Nero, right? Remember King Nero? Uh, Nero was one of the last kings of the Roman Empire who um, just absolutely persecuted Christians. And uh, he was a guy who used to like soak Christians in tar and burn them in his garden like garden torches. I mean, some pretty, pretty crazy stuff, right? Um, there's all kinds of thoughts about who this antichrist is where in the Bible, oftentimes it says, hey, any spirit that puts itself up against Christ is an antichrist, and there's more than one. Now, in the, when we get to the book of Rep Revelation, which is also apocalyptic, right, in nature, um, we get into that a little bit more. And if you want to talk more about that, I'm going to just give a shameful plug for, I think this next week, on the 28th, we have Coffee with Ken. Um, which is something that our seniors group does, and we're going to be talking about some of this stuff. So if you want to join us, it'll be a lively discussion because there's a lot of craziness because about like who this is and stuff like that. We don't have time to fully dive into it this morning, but um, and then the the passage moves on in verse nine, and, and here's what we today really need to remember and hold on to. Okay, I, I love verse uh, chapter. Um, Chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, we've got this incredible picture of the Ancient of Days. God the Almighty, when the Ancient of Days, he sits in his judgment seat, and he has authority, and he judges these nations. And I love the fact that it says, hey, and, and he judges, and he will destroy these nations who pit themselves against him. And so then he gives authority to the figure in this thing who is the Son of Man which is obviously a term that Jesus used for himself over and over again. And so the ancient of days, which is God, gives authority to Jesus, right, who comes and, and Jesus comes to rule. So as a general rule, if you're a student of the Bible, you have to understand that, these prophecy, that the prophecies of the Old Testament almost always are pointi pointing forward to Christ, right? In the, if it's in the Old Testament, these things are pointing towards Christ right, to, to really finagle everything and say, oh, yeah, all this apocalyptic literature is for the end of time is a stretch, right? I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, there's a couple things that allude to things that will happen in the future, but most of what happens in the Old Testament is pointing us towards Jesus, right? Because that's the job of the Old Testament is to help us understand who Christ is, that he's the son of God, that he's been given authority, that he's setting up the kingdom of God so that you and I can enter into that kingdom and be part of God's people. So I spent hours and hours this last week, um, just I, I wish I could give you some significant like, oh yeah, this is just like who these particular individuals is, are, especially that whole antichrist-like figure. But the reality, as I pondered, I kept wondering why the same predictions are in chapter 2 and chapter 7. I kept thinking, well, why would God double up on that? And I thought, well, I think that, um, that in chapter 2, we have this whole vision of history from a human perspective. And in Daniel chapter 7, God's pulling back the curtain and he see, he's letting us see it from his perspective. And so what do you see from his perspective? You see kingdom after kingdom after kingdom that are like these wild beasts that just devour each other. Now, that sounds a lot like the world we live in, right? That sounds like a pretty beastly election cycle, if you ask me, right? Where nobody really cares about anybody else. It's all about winning the battle. It's all about that, you know, that, that's just the world that we live in and, and the corruption of power. And, and so... God pulls back the curtain and allows Daniel to see what this history looks like from his perspective, which is pretty brutal. And I wonder how terrified you and I would be if we got a glimpse of history from God's perspective. Like if God was to just pull back the curtain and let you see what he sees, the, the, the absolute like degradation of humanity and if you could pull back the curtain and see it from God's perspective, all the spiritual warfare that's going on, like, I wonder how you and I would, would take that. I mean, it, it makes, this is why I think Daniel's terrified in this chapter, right? It's, it's, he's not seeing it just from a human perspective, right? He didn't have a problem when he, when he interpreted the 
dream for Nebuchadnezzar. But now he sees almost the same kind of stuff, just in a different form, and he's terrified. Why? Because, man, if you saw this from God's perspective, you, you saw this history and what was happening and all that was to come, man, I, I think all of us would just be absolutely terrified. And I wonder if we would take things a little bit more seriously, though, if we were to see it from God's perspective. I wonder if we would be a little more alert as to how we plan and how we live our lives, if we could see things from God's perspective. I can't give you any specifics on when Christ will return, but I can tell you that we have to be alert and we have to be ready because that's what Jesus told us to do. I think that God is telling Daniel to stay hopeful. He's already promised Daniel, hey, this exile is only going to last 70 years, and then God's people are going to go back, but hey, there's someone coming who is going to bring true freedom to everyone. And we know that that's Jesus Christ. And we're going to, trust me, over the next couple weeks, we're going to really unpack that one and how Daniel looks forward to the coming of Christ. But, um, I think that, um, that God is giving Daniel this incredible view, and I think God would say the same thing to us today, that he would tell us this, hey, before, before Christ's coming and before his coming again, things are going to get worse before they get better. Things are going to get worse and things are going to get crazy before God comes again to rescue us. He tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, but mark this. This is uh, the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Can you even imagine that? <laughs> Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Then he goes on and says, have nothing to do with them. I mean, that, if I read that, I'm like, man, that, that sounds like our news cycle, right? That sounds like what's going on in our world today. But here's something we all have to understand. No matter what we do, no matter who gets elected into office, no matter what tomorrow's breaking news story is, the world will continue to be a turbulent place. Why? Because it is broken and it continues to reel from the ravages of sin. And until all things are brought under submission to Jesus Christ, it will be a turbulent world that we live in. But here's the good news from Daniel chapter 7 is in the end, I don't know if you caught this in the story, in the end, that God will destroy those powers of evil and he will hand the kingdom over to Christ and to his people. Folks, there is good news. There is good news in all of this. There is good news that God wins in the end. The question is, which kingdom are you going to be a part of? Are you gonna be a part of the kingdoms of the world and let those things be the things you worship? Or will you be part of the kingdom of God and allow him to direct your path. You know, in Matthew 24, verses uh, 24 to 30, uh, verse 36, um, I think it's important for us to remember. It says, this is Jesus speaking, okay? And, and let me just say this. It, for those of you who like to, like, read all of the stuff and, like, watch the YouTube videos about apocalyptic stuff and the end of time, here, here's what you really need to understand. Always read in, even in the Bible, any apocalyptic stuff or anything you read, always read it through the lens of what Jesus says about the end times, right? Always go back to Jesus, right? Don't just, don't just take off on some wild goose chase. And believe me, there's a, lot of, there's a whole lot of rabbit holes you can go on or go down. But the reality is go back to Jesus and listen to him. And here's one of the best lines I think you could get from Jesus, is he says, about that day or hour, nobody knows, right? And he's talking about the end of time, okay? He says this, not even the angels in heaven. So the angels in heaven are all sitting around going like, you know, I, I always picture like the angels in heaven going, all right, is it today, God? Is it today, God? Can we go now? Can we go now? Come on, when are we gonna go? Like, come on, God, like, can we, can we wrap this thing up? Like, we're tired of all this mess down there. 
Can we go clean it up? Can we, can we go down and bring everybody home? Right? And so not even the angels know. It says, nor the son. And that's huge for us to understand. Okay, even Jesus himself did not know the time. So if anybody ever tries to tell you they've got it figured out and they know when the time is, okay, just walk away. Okay, walk away. Okay, and don't listen to anything else they say because they've usually got an agenda, right? And in today's world, they usually have a political agenda to go with it. But don't listen because even Jesus doesn't know. Now, does Jesus know now? <laughs> well, he's up here with, with the Ancient of Days, the Holy One, the Father, right? And he's in heaven. And I'm just imagining that, hey, you know what? Just like at one point, right, God pulled the sun aside and said, all right, it's time to go. Um, I, I think that, that w- there will be a day when all that happens and God makes everything right. And all of that destruction, all of that mess will be cleaned up. And we will live with him forever. But the question is, is have you put your trust and your faith in Jesus and his kingdom? Quit worrying so much about the kingdoms of this world. We know that God will eventually overthrow all of them. And as I'm thinking about this, so how do, what's our takeaway for this week? How do we live faithfully under God's direction in the middle of this world that we live in? Well, here's, what, here's something that I thought about this week. How often do I, how often do we contrive, manipulate, and try to determine our own futures. I mean, how much time do you spend just like trying to figure out your future, trying to like make all these plans? You know, the, the book of Proverbs tells us, man, you know, that, that, that our plans only succeed when we put God first. And that, you know what? I mean, we always say, we, I plan, God laughs. But how often do we, do we try to create our own future? If you could pull back the veil, what would your scheming, planning look like from God's perspective? I mean, I have the feeling that if we could see our own attempts to adjust our own history and make our own plans, to write our own destinies, if we saw all of this from God's perspective, it would look like some sort of wild beast not knowing where it's running, devouring what's ever in its path. We would look like the multi-headed beast with our own minds and with, you know, where we would kind of look towards God every once in a while, maybe at Sunday at church, but that we would fill our lives and our thoughts with worldly things and other kingdom-mindedness. And would a view from God's perspective terrify us? Absolutely. As it should. Now today, I want you to just simply think about this as we close. What are the areas of your life that need to be, where your perspective of the future needs to be transformed? What areas have you been trying to live in and plan or manipulate by your own power, by your own ability, by your own worldly perspective? Where do you need to ask God to give you his direction, his perspective? Where is it that you need to allow his kingdom to rule? Now I want to Oftentimes we just sit and we listen in church. I want to give you an opportunity to respond, and we're going to see how you do this this morning. So I'm going to mention a few things, and and when I say these words, if you truly desire God's perspective, if you wish God would pull back the curtain in these areas so that you would know his plan rather than your own, I'm just going to ask you to stand up right where you're at, all right? So if rather than your own perspective, would you want God's perspective in areas of health? Yeah. How about work? How about relationships with your spouse? How about children? (laughs) Do you need God's perspective in finances? Yeah. Do you need God's perspective in your future plans, in your emotional and mental health? Do you need God's perspective on eternity? You see, maybe you're here today and the thought of the future to you seems so unsure. 
maybe even frightening. Well, maybe that's because you don't really know the one who holds the future. Because if you're trusting in the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the future does not need to look bleak. It might look turbulent, but it doesn't have to look bleak. It actually, we can welcome the future with open arms knowing that we have a God who in the end is victorious. And if you're with him, you will live a victorious eternity. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that, if you're worried and anxious and freaked out by the future, then I would just simply say, turn to Jesus and let him make sense of it all. You guys can sit down because you're going to grab your communion. We're going to take this together because this little cup that we um, take together every week, this little piece of bread reminds us that he came once to save us and he's coming again to take us home and we'll be with him forever. So if you have your communion, if you want to take the little piece of bread and let's take that together that represents Jesus' broken body and the cup that represents Jesus' shed blood, let's take that together as well. And today, if you have questions about your future, well, would you consider handing it over to the one who holds all of eternity, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because he's coming back. And the question is, will we be with him? So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for these glimpses into the future that remind us, Father, that you are in control, that no matter what is happening in our world, God, you have things well in hand. And Father, help us, Father, not just to try to see the pieces of the puzzle. Help us not just to see um, dates and times, but Father, help us to see Jesus and trust him for an eternity with you. We love you, Lord. We thank you and we praise you. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.